Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Good morning everybody and welcome to another Tuesday program of politics. But with a slight difference in that I think the political story of the week for a change is not South African. It is the American withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, I'm sure some of you have seen those searing images of people desperately uh, at the airport, desperately trying to get onto flight to the extent where people have climbed onto the wings and sort of sat against the the join of the where the wing joins to the body of the aircraft, which could which could only be t- catastrophic. And then there was the dreadful video of a man who had climbed into the um, into into the wheel on, onto or into the, the the wheel area of the aeroplane. It was a huge uh, American tran- military transport plane. It took off and you saw it rising into the sky and eventually and inevitably. You see a body tumbling from, from, from that part of the aeroplane. It was just the most awful thing to watch. And clearly the, generally the sheer terror of once again being ruled by the Taliban has, has gripped the country. It is astonishing that the Taliban re- essentially recaptured the country in eight days. And I think part of the problem is like much of the Af- campaign in Afghanistan, the Americans and the Allies didn't didn't for a minute think it could happen that quickly, and that somehow the Afghan army, which would not have been able to cope under under any circumstances, and certainly not in not in these circumstances, would be able to gradually hold the uh, Taliban at bay. Whatever promises the Taliban has made about uh, conducting a so shall we say a gentler regime. I would be inclined to say do not take that seriously for a moment. They came into Kabul and we've already seen shootings of perceived collaborators, whether they be military people or translators or any other person who is, who's known to work for the Americans or the Allies. And as a result, although the Americans and the British undertook to remove people who had supported them, get them out of Afghanistan and get them into America or Britain, Britain doing better than America. That eventually came to a halt when they, when they literally couldn't fly airplanes out of there because of the sheer mass of people around the tarmacs of, of, of the airport. I, although Taliban commanders have said that, that girls will not be prevented from getting an education, I, not sure about this because I heard read a report from a Taliban commander who said that, you know, one of their three top priorities included the the, the termination of education for for girls. So it is a a tragic situation. What is really really awful? I read an article um, by a former military man uh, in the Spectator last week, and he was discussing why the Afghan scenario of twenty years was 
pretty much doomed to fail and has failed in the, in the, essentially in the worst possible way. And what worried me so much about what he said was that it was something we should not be learning at this stage. It's something that the Allies should have learned decades ago in different circumstances and particularly for the Americans in Vietnam. What he basically said is that the organization of of the running of Afghanistan was a disaster. The military, the, sorry, the, the politicians never spoke to the military and vice versa. So strategy was never properly developed. They never had a strategy for what they were going to do. They ended up arming warlords, taking very little account of the politics and the structure, the cultural structure of the country, which is clan and tribe based. And therefore, you know, there's, a great deal of internecine fighting between between the groupings, and so it it was essentially chaos. It, it, the, the the politicians and the military never really resolved that. This gentleman said that one of the, one of the things they were doing was trying to fight um, find a strategy to match the equipment that they had instead of having a strategy and then finding the equipment to support the strategy. They did not understand the culture. They did not understand the politics. They did not understand or know of the, the history. There was no one in, in, in the ranks who spoke the language. These are things that I think you and I would take it for granted that you, when you can, if you're conducting warfare, modern warfare, particularly if you're con- conducting it from a Western paradigm into a Middle Eastern paradigm, you, you, there is so much you've got to know about the environment that you're in to understand the enemy that you're fighting. And if you think about the fact that the Taliban was not armoured with the most sophisticated high-level high weaponry, um, it should have been able to be defeated militarily. But no one really knew what they were doing, and and it never improved over the sp- period of 20 years. And it, I, I just find that fascinating and absolutely disturbing. And this probably accounts for some of the failures in other parts of the world. But if you speak to American military who've worked in places, in countries in Africa, etc., he said, you, you just, it, it's an absolute given that you do not go into those environments without finding as much as finding out as much as possible preferably speaking the language rather than relying solely on on interpreters you have got to adjust for the conditions and i think one of the problems that the west faces every time it goes into battle into a non-western environment is that they they do not understand that the western paradigm culturally, politically, economically, historically, is completely and utterly different to that of, say, the Middle East. And I think much of the failure to get to grips with so much that has occurred in the Middle East, whether it be Israel, whether it be Palestine, whether it be um, Syria, whatever it may be, Pakistan, Afghanistan for well over a century, it has been a failure to recognize, and I, and I think this is happening in large spades with Iran, is a complete and utter failure to recognize that they have no understanding of a world that they do not know and do not recognize. And that presents huge amounts of problems. It, what it also proves, of course, is you can have all the equipment and all the sophistication in the world, 
but it, it doesn't it doesn't help in the long run if you don't know how in what circumstances you should or shouldn't be using it. So the Afghan situation is is actually looked on horror by all the states surrounding it, not just the West. Hi FM, your station of choice since two thousand and eight. We are going to have a look at the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change new report. Now, the IPCC is a United Nations body, and the report of which I have tried to read the executive summary, which is about 42 pages long, comes up with the following. And let me sort of give you an idea of, of what comes out of it before I introduce our guest. The General Secretary of the United Nations has referred to it as the code read for humanity. Alarm bells are definitely <clears throat> evidence is irrefutable. Greenhouse gases from fossil fuel are burning and deforesting our planet and choking our planet and putting billions at immediate risk. More extreme weather patterns around the world are, are occurring. All of this is beyond doubt and so on and so on. So it's, it's largely an, a, a sense of catastrophe, but it's hedged with very likely, likely or most likely whether these events will occur. So I have on my show today, uh, scientist, engineer, classical liberal, Andrew Kenny to take this report <laughs> and give us a, a, a scientific response to it. If I can just say, surprisingly, the economist described the summary for policymakers as being more akin to reading tea leaves. Andrew, is that, would you agree <laughs> with the economist on that? Well, I'll go further. I mean, it, it, it just, it's hysterical nonsense. Um, it, it's, it's, it's the IPCC, it began in 1988, and right from the word go, it was producing political propaganda, not science. It poses as a scientific organisation. It's nothing of the sort. It produces propaganda. And its aim in life is to scare you, to scare you with with dangerous uh, climate change. Now, it's the big thing is this, which I think they're panicking. Nothing has happened. None of the none of the dangerous warming that they predicted has happened. Nothing bad's happened at all. On the contrary, um, there is no climate crisis since the last report, which I think was in 2014. Nothing bad's happened. The extreme we have extreme weather events all the time down the ages: hurricanes, droughts, extreme heat, extreme cold, storms, etc., etc. They happen all the time. Are they increasing in frequency? No. Are they increasing in severity? No. Nothing bad's happening. And they're horrified by that. So the results is they produce this dreadful report. Code red for humanity. What absolute nonsense. Humanity faces a, a lot of problems. That's perfectly true. Environmental problems too. Overfishing. Um, the disappearing wildlife in Africa. Huge problems. But the climate is not a problem at all. The climate is just fine. The last, um, the last decade, um, has, has seen the greatest advance in human welfare in all of our history. There is no problem at all. This, this, this report is an absolute scientific disgrace. And, uh, um, even the economists, which by the way is highly alarmist, if even mm. they're dismissing it, then that says something. Mm. No, it's, it's, I get the impression, and you've mentioned it, that there seems to be a 
climate alarmism sort of covering for the fact that we have environmental problems and particularly in the third world and the, the developing world where you have you do have pro- problems with the littering the filling of oceans etc all those i believe are manageable problems provided you have a government governments willing to do it and perhaps the support they may need from the first world to do it but this is this came out of the daily maverick last week uh, it says if there's a 1.5 degree increase in the temperature of the of the oceans it'll have effects such as no water for Gauteng by 2030 oh, lower rainfall and therefore no food heat waves and more wildfires and finally more cyclones 200 kilometer winds and therefore more floods i uh, just this com- complete nonsense absolute nonsense let me just go in this 1.5 mm. degree centigrade this absolute nonsense this was cobbled up at the paris accord which i think was 2015 They all got together and they wanted to make some dangerous statements, but they couldn't agree on anything. Um, for example, they believe that rising carbon dioxide is causing uh, uh, climate change, which it is not. So why don't they say, okay, we want to limit carbon dioxide to such and such a so many ppm? They did nothing of the sort because that was too binding. So they made a very vague thing about we want to limit it to 1.5 degrees above. Uh, pre-industrial times. What on earth does pre-industrial times mean? Let me just explain this. In the last 10,000 years, which is since the last ice age, temperatures mainly have been higher than they are now. We're living in, we're, we're, we're quite, the temperature's now quite cool compared with the last 10,000 years, most of it. But there was one very uh, cold period, which is called the Little Ice Age. which was from about say 1300 to about 1850 then you had the lowest temperatures of the last 10000 years in that period there and it was terrible for life on earth the thames used to uh, used to ice over that ice fairs on the thames for example they're comparing it with that coldest period of all well, well when julius caesar was born it was about 2 degrees warmer than that period there at the moment now we are now cooler than it was when Julius Caesar was born. The idea that if it rises one point, if it rises as much as it was, for example, when Julius Caesar was alive, there's going to be disaster. There's no disaster then at all. It is complete nonsense. And, and the idea that it's going to cause cyclones and this, that, and that is absolute rubbish. In mm. fact, if I say something, it's quite the opposite. That the worst extreme ages were in the Little Ice Age. The 17th century saw... terrible extremes terrible floods and when it was colder as it got warmer um those extreme events got less got less so this is com- complete nonsense mm. well, as i recall i mean to use an example it wasn't one of the reasons that the vikings moved south and and tried to i suppose colonize england was because the climate was milder so the char- the ability to grow crops and produce food was greater well that's and exactly so this was this was the uh, there's been a series of of um over the last 10,000 years a series of warm periods and then less warm periods up and down slightly with the general downward trend so there was a warm period called the roman warm period um uh, well when i say when julius caesar was alive then it got cooler and the reasons almost certainly the sun became less active and it was a, a bit cooler around about the fall of the roman empire i don't know if that had anything to do with it 
Then it started picking up by about 900 um, uh, um, AD during the, what's now called the medieval warm period. Temperatures began rising. And sure enough, that was the time when, when the big Viking um, explorations began um, and the conquest of, 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 uh, of the east of, of Britain and, and Dublin and, and Scotland and so forth. And they also moved into Greenland, as you say. And you can see their remains there now. The remains are there now. And you can see them. They grew crops then during this medieval warm period about a thousand years ago. Well, you can't grow them anymore because it's too cold. In other words, it was warmer a thousand years ago than now. And then, and then what happened was temperatures then began dropping around about, around about 1200, something like that. And the dropping was almost certainly because the sun became less active. And it became colder and colder. And eventually the Vikings had to abandon Greenland altogether. That's what happened. Mm. The, key, the, the, the as a, sitting as a sort of as an observer who's not a scientist, the, the hysteria seems to range around the fact that there's there's the push to reduce carbon emissions. Uh, time time limits have been put on it. Uh, they've included time limits. You know, South Africa's got to do it as well. Let's be honest. I mean. Neither the quality of the government nor the amount of money available is going to be even th- even con- we can't even contemplate it for South Africa. I know they've asked for a an extension uh, on a, a sort of artificial what I suppose we'd regard as an artificial time time limit, but it's just not possible. It, it's not going to be possible. I, I'd be I, I'll, I'll say that categorically. No, well, of course it's not going to be possible. But but can I say more? It's not going to be possible. Of course not. Um, but more important, it's not necessary. It's an absolute load of nonsense. If I can just speak about carbon dioxide. Yes. Carbon dioxide is not a pollutant. It's a wonderful life-giving gas. Most life on Earth, including us, depends on it. The plants depend on a, on a reasonable level of carbon dioxide. It's now very, very low in the atmosphere. Very dangerous, not dangerously low. It was dangerously low um, 150 years ago, and we by burning fossil fuels, have returned the carbon into the air, and we've done we've done the planet a good, a, a huge favour. Plants are now uh, plant life is increasing. The earth is greening because of rising carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is is a greenhouse gas. The greenhouse gas is one that traps heat and prevents it escaping from Earth in, into space. That's true, but it's a very weak greenhouse gas. By far the most important is water vapour which was responsible for 90% of, of, the, of, the, of the greenhouse effect on Earth. But here's the more important thing about carbon dioxide. It, it, it's, it's got only, I'll be a bit technical here, it's only got one importance absorption band, which is 15 micron. Don't worry too much about that. Mm. Just one band. And it's already saturated its peak, that band already. What happens is carbon dioxide, as it rises from zero, um, has some sort of warming effect. And when it reaches about 150 ppm, which it reached, well, it's never been that low in the history of the work of the Earth. It's way above that now. Adding more carbon dioxide now has almost no effect at all. It's got no effect that we've ever seen. So it doesn't matter how high carbon dioxide goes as far as the climate is concerned. It'll have no effect. So the idea that we must reduce carbon dioxide, first of all, the idea is nonsense, destructive nonsense. And, cert- and secondly, as you s- say, we can't possibly do it economically because fossil fuels are by far the most economic and, and efficient fuel that we've got. 
I happen to be a big supporter of nuclear power, which does not emit any, any, any greenhouse gases. And that's why France, for example, is, is one of the lowest emitters of, of, of carbon dioxide for electricity production in, 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 in the world. And Germany, with its energy, then is one of the highest. Mm-hmm. And the reason is that Germany shut down its nuclear plants out of pure ideology, tried to rely on solar and wind, which, of course, was useless, and actually has to rely on a whole lot of coal that's even dirtier than our coal. So there you've got the Germans going on about we must reduce carbon dioxide as they're building coal power stations. No, it's, it's, it's actually astonishing. It strikes me that this is very much, uh, this has very much been driven by a first world ideology that it's almost, it's, it's, it's a, a very unhappy ideology that, that produces the sense of catastrophism. And, but what our colleague, um, John K. Berman points out is that it's really, it's, it's an attack on the, it's, it's an attack on the third world because there is, Generally, whether it's growth in India or China or or Africa, perhaps Africa's closest to home, development to the point where you can take action against climate change depends on fossil fuels to give you the energy to do so. And without that energy, your 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 societies remain moribund, and there, there will be no growth. So one almost gets the impression that it's the 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 first world is gazing at its own navel. Well, entirely so. It's a form of imperialism. It's a new form of imperialism that we say, well, the the, the reason that we, you and I, and people in the West and people in Germany, including uh, Greta Thunberg, for example, the reason they're so prosperous and healthy is is because of the Industrial Revolution that began in in England in uh, beginning around about the 18th century. And that was based on coal. Coal delivered us into the modern industrial age and doubled lifespans and made us healthy. It, it, it had some bad effects too. Coal is polluting, but, it's, but mainly it had wonderfully beneficial effects for the whole of the Western world. And it could have the same effects for the poor countries too, but, they, but the imperialists don't want them to have that. They don't want them to have that exactly as Gain Berman was saying and you're suggesting now. And so that what they want for the poor countries is to remain poor, is very much, is very much like, it reminds me of, of, of Dr. Fafud. Um, this is being a bit crude now, but I, I was living, I was, I lived through the whole of, a, of apartheid and people are saying, you're, you're, Af- you're African, you're native. He doesn't really want motor cars and that. He's quite happy with his kraal and a few, a few cows, the happy, simple life. This is exactly what the imperialists are now saying about Africa. You don't want modern development like us. It's very, very naughty. We can have it, but you can't. You must have your simple pastoral life, and then maybe we'll build you a few windmills if you like. This is disgusting imperialism. Mm. Uh, It's interesting because John Cain Berman's article is based on an, an estimate that Barbara Creasy raised that the the world, the, 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 the first world has to essentially provide $750 billion a year to developing countries in order to, in, in, in order to, for them to both A, develop and B, for them to do it without emitting, uh, without carbon emissions. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, isn't that really the point? That if there are going to be deadlines set by those who, who, who deem themselves to be our, our seniors and betters, 
they, they have to pay for it. Otherwise, they, we're not going to be able to give it to them. <laughs> no, no, but, well, uh, no, I agree with I agree with that. They're saying we won't allow you to develop as we've done. So they say, okay, well then, then pay for it. By the way, seventy seven hundred fifty uh, billion dollars is it? It's not nearly enough, yeah. by the way, if you want to mm-hmm. achieve that program. So give us lots more, um, mm-hmm. which of course they're, they're, they're not going to do. Uh, so it's, it's just such terrible. It's this, this destructive hypocrisy of it all. Mm-hmm. And then you look at you, you look at the the people in the West, the loudest mouths about reducing carbon dioxide. Greta Thunberg now living in extreme luxury. It could, she emitted about five times as much carbon dioxide traveling across the Atlantic in a super luxury carbon fiber yacht with an expensive crew flown, flown in, especially for her needs. There's her. There's John Kerry now in the United States that's in charge of climate for the Biden administration. He's got a private family jet that he jets around in the whole time, jetting to conferences, telling people how, how naughty air travel is. I mean, the staggering hypocrisy of, of, of all this nonsense. No, it, it's, it's very, it's, it's, I think it's psychologically fascinating that there's this sort of billion, billion dollar industry aimed at essentially making our lives more miserable and not necessarily, I think, at tackling the issues that can be tackled, which, as I say, are, the, are more the environmental issues, um, with the, the, being able to make create water that is safe to drink. I mean, the, the unsafe drinking water is a huge problem in Africa. And it's, it's issues like that. I mean, Michael Schellenberger uh, writes in his book, um, Extinction Never, I think it's called, and he, he says the problem in, in a place like as uh, like the Congo is they use they don't use fossil fuels as such they use they are burning trees they're turning uh, trees into in, 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 into um, into <coughs> essentially into coal for 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 heating purposes for cooking purposes and that's, that's so inefficient and 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 polluting and destructive for the environment I agree a hundred percent. Uh, I've spent a bit of time and not much, a bit of time in Kenya and Uganda. And I've seen there, I've seen there, there's some charcoal at the side of the road. Mm. So there's a wonderful fever tree that takes about 30 years, beautiful tree, takes about 30 years to, to grow. They chop it down for firewood that will last a weekend. That's what they're doing. And it's rampant throughout Africa. The forests are being chopped down for firewood. They're being cleared with, 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 um, um, slash and burn agriculture was disastrous for the environment. The wildlife are being, are being eaten or hunted out or being driven out. The, the, the huge, the biggest problem for the African environment is poverty. Poverty is the worst cause of, of pollution and environmental degradation. What you want is to get people as rich as possible, as developed as possible, as quickly as possible. That, that protects the environment. If I can just give you... Can, can, can I pick that up with uh, you, Andrew? IFM um, 101.9 megahertz of life. I'd like to pick up the, the issue of, of, of poverty in, in light of the fact that we have a situation where the, the first world is putting pressure on, on the third world to do things it is not yet ready to do because it has not yet developed and grown. Yeah. Um, and yet so much has been invested uh, in, in, in the marketing, the emotion, um, the, the change of how 
industry runs in order to accommodate accommodate the climate change uh, dialogue, uh, dialogue and how 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 do we change how do we get the change to actually deal with issues that can be changed and and not deal with issues that are frankly not relevant well not not only not relevant but actually destructive mm-hmm. well it's just it, I, I agree that that this this is the biggest problem how how do you how do you persuade people that the climate change the climate alarm is is complete unscientific nonsense and how do you persuade them to 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 to, to encourage Africa to, to, to bring about the best, the best policies for itself, which is to develop as quickly as it possible, to grow as quickly as possible, to, to use modern technology, which includes the use of fossil fuels. It's, it's, it's a great problem. But I think there is a huge receptive audience that, uh, that the alarms don't want us to reach. And you, you, you've seen the, the attempts in, 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 in our local media they want to shut down the debate. They don't want anyone to say that climate change is a load of nonsense. They don't, they don't want to win the debate. They want to end the debate, to shut you down. And we've, got, we've just got to find ways of, of opening up the debate, of having more and more debates about it so that people can be educated and sort of know what the truth is about this. Uh, Andrew, final question just for me is, the, you keep hearing people saying there's nothing, as you say, there's nothing to discuss. The science is settled. Yeah, yeah, I, I've, I've thought by virtue of its nature, science is never settled. Science is never settled. And, and every, all the great scientists say that. So, so Newton and all of them, that science is never settled. There's, no, no theory is ever confirmed. All it is, is it's, it's not, um, shown to be wrong. That, that's all you can say. Is either shown to be wrong or is not yet shown to be wrong. That's all. And mm-hmm. science depends; it's adversarial. It depends on critical debate the whole time, non-stop. Uh, Einstein said this. He said, "This is my theory here. Go and prove me wrong." And even mm-hmm. gave, he even gave ways of testing. He said, "Look, this it so happened there was some solar eclipse in 1919." He said, "This is my prediction. This is what will happen. And if it doesn't happen, my theory is wrong." But of course it did happen. Exactly so. The moment, the moment you hear anyone saying the science is settled, then you know you're talking about religion, not science. Mm. There's been a revelation. Moses has spoken. We've got the, uh, or, or Muhammad has spoken. It's the final word. No criticism allowed. If, mm. if they say that about science, then it's a religion and not science. Mm. Andrew, I think that's a super uh, point to end on. I thank you very much for, for coming on. Uh, Particularly as the, we are, South Africans are going to be faced with the reality of not being able to meet the, uh, the UN's requirements. So we need to think about it a lot more than I think we do. And we've got to stop calling people deniers just because they don't agree. Thank you once again. And I'm sure we'll have cause to get you back in the near future. Thank you very much. And by the way, it's damn cold down here in Cape Town. (laughs) <laughs> it's lovely up here, I've got to tell you. <laughs> right, um, in the last few minutes of the, of the show, let's, uh, let's just look at things closer to home on the more political and mundane side. And that is a worthwhile look at uh, Zambia's election. Now, Zambia has had a fairly autocratic, very rather weird uh, president for a good number of years. Um, in the form of uh, Edgar, uh, Edgar Lungu, and his 
repeated sort of adversary, Hakainde Hichilema's uh, battles with him have been sort of ongoing and nasty, and, and he's been treated extremely badly by the government. So they've just had a, a new election, and the Electoral Commission found the opposition leader Hichilema victorious. 2.81 million votes against 1.81 million votes for Lungu, the largest margin of victory in a quarter of a century. This is obviously good for a number of points of view. First of all, it showed that the Electoral Commission appears to have had control over this uh, election, that the result was in a way so substantive and so significant that although the uh, outgoing president moaned and complained about violence in certain areas, it, it it didn't last long and it, it, didn't, it, it really didn't appear to, to, to wash. And also, obviously, the fact that Zambia is in dreadful economic straits because of very strange economic policies over the last decade. And by all accounts, uh, um, Hichilema, although he has sort of some of a socialist bent, is looking and has said categorically that the country has to embark on a program of austerity. And this is very, very refreshing. He hasn't backed down from it. He keeps, he keeps saying it. So it's, 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 it's a fascinating, uh, a change. And I think it's very important given the fact that our elections, our election process is, uh, is under dispute. And, uh, Zimbabwe is just the basket case of, uh, of election fraud and everything that goes with it. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. I came upon a story this morning that I think is most fascinating. Um, the state-owned ports owner and operator, Transnet, and you know what a terrible state our ports have been in, will seek 100 billion rand in private investment to expand its facilities in Durban and at Kulcha in the uh, in the Eastern Cape. Now, Business Day regards the announcement as... as marking groundbreaking reform in the government's approach to state-owned companies in which private investment has not previously been possible, except for rare examples. It, Business Day says it signals that President Cyril Ramaphosa's economic reform agenda is gathering momentum. Now, I think that last statement is wishful thinking. Uh, I wouldn't say gathering momentum. I would say that it's a sign of absolute desperation. Um, the investments are intended to be made over 10 years to expand the facilities, um, which have been hit by inefficiencies, aging infrastructure and congestion. And Durban has been ranked rock bottom among 351 ports. I mean, embarrassing doesn't begin to uh, to cover it. And apparently uh, Transnet CEO Portia Derby has told a briefing that the process will begin this week with an open-ended request for information to test the appetite of the market for the assets of the state-owned ports operator and that the final bit evaluation process should be concluded by June of next year and the upgrade should be completed by 2023, which would be quite impressive. There's no more detail at this stage as the government essentially is looking to see what sort of interests is is uh, shown by the private sector. But I wonder whether the private sector is going to use this opportunity to say, if they are prepared to come on board, because they need the ports and they, they need the transport links to the ports, and this has been a disaster for 
for exports and imports into the country um, is what exact what what will the government be prepared to concede to business and I think business is in a very very strong position despite its own desperate need for improved facilities it's in a position to really bargain with it, with the government and say we're not going to accept that we simply loan you or give you the money for you to continue to own these services and and we have no control over the quality of the services that we are paying for. My plea to business on this occasion would be to knuckle down and say this is it, this is what we want, these are our demands. This is what ownership we want. Uh, the relaxation, perhaps, of labor laws and BE requirements would help as well. It's time. It's an opportunity for the business sector to do what to help society, but also do what it wants for its own sake and get something for that. And I think that is something that the business has got to stop kowtowing to what the government says it wants it to do particularly when the government has created the mess in the first place. Um, I was going to look at the uh, 40 million rand spent on poor security at the uh, Charlotte Macleke Hospital, but uh, that probably speaks for itself. Um, just my final comment, which is quite, I think, quite amusing, is that the hashtag Free Jacob Zuma campaign is, a, is a, submitting that a civilian doctor cannot second guess the opinion of a military doctor who has a title of something like lieutenant general doctor. So that looks like they're setting up for a possible application to further postpone Jacob Zuma's trial. It's absolute crass nonsense. The, the, the designation in the military is a military designation. It has nothing to do with medical qualifications or medical ability or medical anything else. So when that comes up, Treat it with the contempt it thoroughly and utterly deserves. And with that, um, I wish you a lovely week and uh, see you same time next week.